We resume at chapter 25 of 1 Samuel. Put your finger there, and that's where we're headed. Now, Heavenly Father, we always just want to bow before you and acknowledge your presence here and our desperate need. Please open the eyes of our understanding. Show us things that you want to say to us tonight. I, I know you want to encourage us. You have something for each and every one of us because you brought us here. So help us to open up and hear what the Spirit is saying and put it into practice and be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here in chapter 25, we have a time out of sorts, um, a break in the action from the intense chase scene that's been going on for about five chapters, starting in chapter 20. Uh, as you recall, and most of you know, King Saul is the one who is relentlessly uh, pursuing his rival, David, who is kind of king-elect. The Lord has chosen him, but he's not yet crowned as king uh, to replace that rebellious, unbelieving Saul. Uh, now, so from desert stronghold to uh, desolate caves to uh, forest thickets and wilderness places, David and 600 of his men are living as fugitives, uh, fleeing and hiding from this madman Saul and the entire army. So up until now, we've seen David really on his best behavior. He's a godly man. He's a young man in his 20s. Uh, he's wise in all his ways, the scriptures keep pointing out, and, and really we've just seen his noble side. Uh, in fact, last chapter, you recall, he had the momentary opportunity to end his nightmare and kill King Saul, who's been trying to kill him. And instead of killing him, he just uh, cut off a piece of his robe to prove later that, look, I could have killed you, but I didn't because I'm loyal to you. You're God's man, and I'm your servant, and, and uh, you have nothing to fear from me. And uh, what a, just a godly man filled with character. Now, meanwhile, uh, Saul is saying that he's sorry and that he will, he'll stop pursuing, but David goes back to the stronghold because he knows this guy's been uh, repentant before, and it's just been a, a bunch of emotions. And so, meanwhile, now... Uh, David has gone back to the caves and running, and uh, so giving Saul some time for his warm emotions to cool off, and before he comes back uh, after uh, King David-elect again with his jealous, murderous rage. And so uh, we're given now just a, a chapter uh, of a scene from David's life in the wilderness that kind of reveals that while David may have a heart of gold, as they say. Uh, he is not without clay feet. And so uh, he's clearly got some growing to do. A near disaster tonight. The Lord intervenes and, and stops him from sinning a grievous sin. And so we'll see chapter uh, 25, starting at verse 1. Now Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. Now, I think we should stop right there because uh, take a couple minutes to say goodbye to Samuel. He's such a godly man. So number one, the death of a good friend. Now, I don't know for sure. It's just an idea that I have that perhaps the death of Samuel... Um, because Samuel had just such a monumental impact on David that I think his passing helped explain why David is so hot-headed in this chapter and over-the-top um, uh, in a response that was such a potential disaster. I really see it as the death of Samuel really not handled very well by David. So Samuel's passing is a big deal. Your text says that all of Israel gathers. Now, not every last Israelite is there, but the, the, the representatives of the 12 tribes, the dignitaries, and surely masses of people show up to honor this man of God. And even David in the strongholds uh, gets word that uh, Samuel has passed on. Now, it's really nice that they honor Samuel in his death because they weren't particularly respectful in life. 
And uh, I don't know if you recall back in chapter 8, when they came to him and they said, look, you know, you're old and your sons aren't walking in your ways. We'd like you just to to kind of fade out of the picture. And we'd like that good-looking guy over there, King Saul, to replace you because we're done with you. So uh, it grieved Samuel. And as human nature is, you know, we don't really appreciate what we have until it's not around anymore. And so here they're all coming out and weeping and uh, honoring him, which is good. He's a great man of God. You recall, of course, this is, it was Hannah's prayers to the Lord back in in 1 Samuel chapter 1 when she was barren, couldn't have any children. She prayed to the Lord and the Lord heard her. Samuel, the Lord hears and uh, she drops him off, dedicates him to the Lord, and drops this Samuel off as a toddler in the tabernacle, soon-to-be temple, of the Lord, where he serves the Lord all his life, from, from being a little toddler, just a godly guy. He was the last judge in Israel's history, and he was the first prophet. So he had two big, pivotal roles there. And look at his humility You know, King Saul has already built a monument in his name, and that's perhaps where he wants to be buried. But look where he wants to be buried. He wants to be buried at home, perhaps out in the garden. I mean, this is such a man of God. He gets a shout out in Hebrews 11 and verse 32, I believe, for uh, the hall of faith. And so just a wonderful man. Now for David... And which sets you up to kind of understand David's frame of mind in this chapter. Uh, Samuel's hands were the one that came over him as a, as a shepherd boy and, and took the flask of oil. And it was Samuel's voice that said, you're the one. You're the one God wants as king over Israel, over everybody else, all, over all your brothers, over Saul, everybody. It's you. His voice, his eyes, his smile of acceptance. And, and you know, when, when Madman Saul goes crazy throwing spears at him, where does he run first? David runs to Samuel, and Samuel comforts and protects him. So Jesse doesn't seem to me to be a very good father figure. Uh, Jesse didn't even invite David, his son, to the banquet where Samuel said, bring all your sons because uh, there's a special gathering, and he didn't even invite him. Who's his father figure? I would say Samuel is his father figure, and Samuel just died. And now it sets you up for why he's going to act the way he does, I really believe. And so it appears news of Samuel in our verse coming up in verse 2 prompts a move to safer uh, ground, and he's going to move to a place called Ma'on. It's a refuge there in the desert where he's been before. Um, You know, he senses that now that Samuel's gone, Samuel's influence and prayers are taken away. David senses he's in danger, so he's going to move. He is in danger, but it's not from Saul right now. It's from mishandling his own grief. That's an important one. Verse 2, 2 through 9. A certain man in Ma'on, now that's where David's going to go hang out now in the caves and the places there, who had property there at Carmel, was very wealthy. He had a 1,000 goats and 3,000 sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent, beautiful woman, but her husband, a Calebite, was surly and mean in his dealings. While David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it's sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we didn't mistreat them, and the whole time they were uh, at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, and they'll tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my young men, 
since we come at festive time, please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. All right, let's pause there. We have the loss of a friend, and now, number two, the, a reasonable request. So David and his 600 men are fugitives. They're hungry a lot of the time. And uh, they have now moved back to where they were back in chapter 23, Ma'on. And they have been providing a wall of protection for these 3,000 uh, livestock of Nabal's uh, without any payment or remuneration of any kind. It's sheep shearing time, which is hard to say. Sheep shearing. And uh, it's always a festive time. It's a holiday and uh, gift giving and all of that, banqueting. And uh, so he's going to send some men uh, with a polite request to be kind of invited to the party, at least to receive some provision. And um, because he's owed it. Actually, so here's how the story goes. Let's go over. The owner uh, of these vast flocks and wife are now introduced. Nabal is filthy rich. When the Bible says he's very rich, the Bible doesn't really exaggerate. It just really means that this guy is very, very wealthy. Uh, David Guzik put it this way. There are four kinds of riches. There are riches in what you have. There are riches in what you do. There are riches in what you know, and there are riches in what you are. Riches of character. Nabal was very rich. He was a very rich man, but only rich in what he had. He had the lowest kind of riches. It's so funny because it's what all of us want, really. We want more money, we want more wealth, and we find security in that. And yet Jesus warns everybody, and he says, you know, uh, wealth and riches is a spiritual, um, it's a spiritual liability. It doesn't help you spiritually. In fact, it's a hindrance to you spiritually. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the money. There's something wrong with us and our hearts. I like what the, and that was in Matthew 19 and verse 24 that Jesus says that. Uh, I like the, the proverb that says, Give me neither poverties nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you, or I may not have enough uh, and become poor and steal, and so dishonor the name of my God. Nabal's problem, of course, is that he had too much and he had a wicked, self-serving heart. Uh, The proverb is Proverbs 30, if you're taking notes. So, of course, it's not the wealth, as I just said, The problem was with his character and heart. So Nabal is described in your text, two words, surly and mean. In the Hebrew, kashe, for the surly part, it means hard, rude, difficult, fierce, angry, obstinate. Well, he's not done yet either because there's another adjective in the Hebrew that's translated mean in your text. It's raw. In, in, in Hebrew, and it means malignant, malevolent, evil, unkind, and uncaring. But there's enough adjectives to give you a picture of this kind of man. Not the kind of guy you want to do business with or be married to, I would think. He's kind of like Ebenezer Scrooge. Just filthy, filthy rich and, and compassionless So a real contrast to this Abigail. Wow. Now, when the Bible says beautiful about a woman, it's a real treat because it's only about three gals who get a shout out like that. It's Sarah, Rachel, and Esther, and Abigail. So she's a pretty stunning gal. Not only is she outwardly beautiful, but she's smart. She has wisdom. How did that poor thing end up with Nabal? Arranged marriages. That's how it happened. Her father gave her to the wealth, not to a man. That's what commentators think. I mean, uh, some Abigails willingly 
sign up for Nables. It's kind of a phenomena. Um, I've seen it. I mean, I'm a pastor and I do marriage counseling, and I see it the other way around as well. Uh, there's something in human nature, maybe, that we want to save or we want to rescue or my love will change this person or whatever the circumstance is, but um, it kind of happens sometimes. Uh, sometimes Job, a good man like Job, ends up with his wife, who wasn't much of a support, if you remember. Her advice was curse God and die. Uh, it wasn't very good. And so, you know, you have that kind of thing uh, going on in the scriptures. Um, the way to avoid being married to a difficult person is to make Christian character and devotion first and foremost uh, as a priority when you're dating. And by the way, once you've signed on as a Christian, um, lack of character is not biblical grounds for divorce. Well, he has no character. You marry him, right? She, she's not very nice. Yeah, uh, in the good times and the bad times, in sickness and in health, when she's nice and when she's not, Right? I think in the presence of God and everybody gathered, I think we heard you say it, say those two little words. I do, but okay. I, tra I, I, I digress. I was going to say I transgress, <laughs> which I do on occasion, but thankfully we have God's grace. Amen? All right, let's move on. Notice David's gracious uh, approach. He, he knows uh, Nabal's thrown a big party. As I said, it's shearing sheep time, huge festivities, generosity abounding. It's time to be benevolent. Uh, David sends young men, 10 young men, uh, because uh, young men are not intimidating. He doesn't want to force his hand and make him fearful and intimidate him into giving him what is his rightful due. He's just so gracious. Verse 6 there, he says, Greet him in my name with a long life. Bless him. Uh, good health to you and yours, prosperity. And then verse 6 and following, he gives him the guys a script. He says, uh, tell him this, as your servants fully know and can tell you, uh, we've been quite a help to you and your shepherds. Um, glad to be a service and provide a valuable um, work for you. Uh, never took a lamb from you, even though, uh, you know, since it's holiday time, uh, please give these young men anything you could spare. He doesn't say, hey, wait, here's an itemized receipt, and we'd like this much. This is how I would have been paid, and I would just like to get that from you. He doesn't. He's polite. Look at David. Polite, friendly, warm, gracious, humble, tactful. He calls him, your, he, he says, your servant, my, and he calls him himself his son. He's humble. He's undemanding. He's reasonable. It's reasonable. So let's move on. Let's see what Nabal thinks of this very gracious, polite, reasonable request. Verses 10 through 13. Nabal answered David's servants, who is this David? Who is the son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, put on your swords. So they put on their swords and David put on his about 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. All right, the death of a friend, a reasonable request, and casting pearl before swine. Now, uh, something Jesus discourages us from doing is that harsh saying, don't cast your pearl before swine. And all that means is when it's clear that someone doesn't really value uh, the the wisdom or the uh, doesn't appreciate the sacred things that you're saying or doing, it's unprofitable for you to continue because those valuable things are just uh, trampled on. 
we have a hard time with this. And then he says, and, and by the way, not only do they not care about the pearls, but they trample on them and then they turn around and you're in trouble. So Jesus says, have the discernment to know when, you, when this is a person who doesn't value anything you're saying, nothing valuable, and it, there's a time to use discernment like that. But David doesn't know this man. So let's take a look at Nabal's nasty reply. It's given here. Insult number one in verse 10. Who is this David? Well, we already know in the scriptures that David is famous. So it's a rhetorical question because, look, he knows his last name. Who is the son of Jesse? <laughs> oh, whoops, uh, he does know who he is. Uh, let me translate for you. Who does this guy think he is? By the way, he's no son of mine. He's the son of Jesse. Because check your text out. In the request, he says, is there anything you could give my servants and, and me, your son? It's just a, a Middle Eastern way of saying, I'm like your son. I mean, you're like my dad. I mean, there's a, isn't there, do you feel the love? And he's saying, no, I don't. And you have a father, and his name is Jesse, and who do you think you are? You know. And insult number two or three, however you want to divide it up, a subtle accusation uh, oh, you know, there are many people breaking away as rebels and trying to have a, start a little coup here to replace rightful King Saul. He's all for Saul. He's Saul's man, for sure. So verse 10, we see that Nabal's on Saul's side, and he's accusing David of just being a rebel. And then insult number three in verse 11, you're not getting even bread and water. I don't acknowledge you or your men or what you did. Your request is flatly denied. Now, in the East, the minimal obligation for Eastern uh, hospitality is at least bread and water. You're not even getting that. That alone is a crazy maker to those guys back there. And then if you start factoring in all that David and his men had done for this guy, right? he's ungrateful, he's heartless, he's rude, he's stingy, he's self-centered, but we've already been down that road. And by the way, in the Hebrew, uh, the personal pronouns that he uses in verse 11 really uh, give him away. Check it out, I'll read it to you. In King James, is more of a word-for-word translation. Uh, then a thought for thought, like NIV is thought to thought. King James is word for word. That's why sometimes it's good in King James and sometimes it's very clunky. And uh, so here's where it's good. Here's, I'll read it to you. Verse 11, he says, shall I then take my bread and my water and my livestock that I have killed for my shearers and give it to you guys who I don't even know where you're from. Uh, the surest way to waste a life is to make it all about you. Now, uh, Nabal hurls insults. We're going to see that in verse 14 and railed on these guys. So they go back to David and report word for word. Uh, instead of an invite, you know, David sees them coming. He's hungry. You know, it's like, is this the answer we've been looking for? We really deserve this. And uh, it was so courteous and polite of an invitation. Instead, he gets slapped in the face. Now, you can see David's fierce response. He snaps, uh, blood, I imagine, blood rushing to his face, the adrenaline pumping. Uh, his buttons have been pushed. Who calls him son of Jesse? Do you remember? Who is that? Who is David? Who is that son of Jesse? Who used that language? Another foolish man, Saul. Saul uses that language. Buttons, buttons are being pushed. And so... David, in verse 13, uh, turns and commands, and if we put it in popular vernacular, it would say, lock and load, guys, and um, <laughs> let's go. Uh, if it was a Western, it would be hitch up the, the horses. I mean, here we go. 400 fighters arm themselves, 200 stay back with the supplies, and, and there they go out, 400 guys, man, armed, fierce. They want vengeance. Um, and they're going to drop by Nabal's little party to pay a visit. 14 through 19. 
One of the servants told Nabal's wife, Abigail, David sent messengers from the desert to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. That word hurled there is interesting. Um, It's a word describing an eagle swooping down on its prey in a mad, frenzied screeching. Oh, just thought that was interesting. So David sends messengers from the desert to give our master his greetings. Abigail, listen to this. But he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They didn't mistreat us. And the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day, they were a wall around us all the time. We were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Abigail Abigail lost no time. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seahs of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins and 200 cakes of pressed figs and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she didn't tell her husband, Nabal. So number four would be a wife of noble character. Now the Proverbs say a wife of noble character who can find, I found one, but she is worth far more than rubies. And so it's Abigail to the rescue here. Now let's talk about this. First, Um, really a shout out to the unsung hero of the chapter. I don't know if you look for things like this. I do. Who's a hero here? The servant. The servant is the reason Abigail's going to uh, get the information she needs for God to use Abigail to save an entire household of and only the Lord knows how many men would have perished. And so, you know, when, this is important, when we're aware of something behind the scenes brewing that can cause injury and harm, we need to get involved and bring it to the light. A lot of people just have, this is none of my business. Well, uh, well, he doesn't know that she's thinking this, and he's going to, and and I just know that. And, and you need to do something about it, or you're an accessory. You need to bring it to the light. So the servant relays the whole nasty incident to Abigail. He says, uh, Abigail, you better give this some deep thought because we're pretty much all going to die, all right? So the, the Lord knows I can't talk to your wicked husband, and nobody can. And in the Hebrew and in the King James, it says, son of Belial. Belial is... Really, uh, a, a synonym for the devil, but it means worthless. And so he's worthless. No one can talk to him. Like maybe you can. We're all about to die. Do you care? This is what happened. Uh, maybe you can talk to him. Well, the answer to that question is no, not even Abigail can, because she leaves him in the dark where he apparently prefers to be anyway. So Abigail loads the trailer full of all of that delicious sounding food and sends the servants ahead and she follows behind. Why can nobody talk to this man? Well, you've heard all the adjectives that describe his nature, right? Um, Proverbs 17.12 says this, better to meet a bear robbed of her cubs than a fool in his folly. That's why nobody wants to talk to him. It's dangerous to confront a fool. It is just dangerous. Nobody wants to do it. 20 through 31. All right, so Abigail to the rescue. Here we go. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. David had just said, it's been useless all my watching over this guy's property in the desert so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with me, David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. 
When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, My Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. May my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I didn't see the men my master sent. Now since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, may your enemies and all who intend to harm my master be like Nabal. And let this gift, which your servant has brought to my master, be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master, uh, because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has done for my master every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him leader over Israel, my master will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord has brought my master success, remember your servant. Wow. What a woman. All caps. W-O-M-A-N. Now, number five then. A gentle answer turns away wrath. Proverbs chapter 15 verse 1 works every single time. It's the word of God. A gentle answer turns away wrath. It means instead of fighting fire with fire, you fight it with a blanket, a warm, cuddly blanket of love <laughs> that will put it out. Oh, my word. We are so slow to get these quick little gems here. It just says, look, I'm telling you how to put out a fire. Respond nicely. The opposite spirit, it will work every time. No, uh, just in the nick of time here, perfect timing as you always see the Lord in his sovereign providential way, uh, working in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, exactly as we overhear David in verses 20 to 22 saying, uh, nursing the wound and reliving the injury and rehearsing the injustice and swearing vengeance and he's just working it all up. You know, this is how guys do it. Of all the nerve and can you believe and why I oughta, <laughs> right? And then, then uh, why I oughta, oh, who are you? I was going to kill all the guys who belong to Nabal, but you belong to Nabal too. A woman, a beautiful one. Hmm. Well, she asked permission to speak. By the way, let me say this. Nabal's mean-spirited rejection of David and his ingratitude are pretty bad, but they're not capital offenses, are they? Uh Notice in the whole offense and David's potential disastrous misstep that he's about to do, uh, there's no seeking of the Lord. Where's the self-control? Where's the mercy? Where, where's the David we just saw in the cave, for crying out loud? How, how ironic is this? How ironic. The guy who's trying to kill him, he shows mercy to. And the guy who's rude to, he wants to kill him and everybody associated with him. It, it's pretty ironic, but for me, I just think it's called, there's a word for it. It's not progression. It's when you take something and you put it on somebody else. Projection. He's projecting. And who is he projecting? It's Saul. It's Saul he's putting. He can't kill Saul because Saul is considered his superior, but who is this nobody? So this nobody or this equal to mine, I can do as I please. And that's how we, human nature is. You know, if, if I regard you a little bit higher, I'm going to treat you a little bit differently. But the true test and measure of character 
is how you treat a peer or somebody you consider beneath you. And now we see David's got some growing up to do. And, and you know, I do want to say, First uh, Peter 5.8 says, Be on alert, be self-controlled. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He just is coming out of a real victory. He came out of that cave. He didn't kill his enemy. He, 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 he shows mercy. And everybody who reads that is like, wow. And he's walking away and the devil sticks out his foot, his leg. That's where he gets us. And now he's about to wipe out an entire family for, for really no good reason. You don't kill people for that. The enemy gets you right where you think, you know what? Wow, look what God just, how God just used me. Just be careful in the wake of spiritual victory because the devil is always looking for a little chink in the armor. Uh, 23 through 25 Abigail cuts straight right to the chase. She addresses him as her lord or master 14 times. Now, can you see why? 400 soldiers, and here's Abigail, wife of the guy they want to kill. So yes, my lord, my lord, my lord, 14 times. That was smart. Uh, Throwing herself down before him into the the dirt, you know, that that was natural, I would think. Uh, She says, blame me. This is just very godly. And then here's her reasoning, and commentators call her call this a masterpiece of logic and spiritual maturity. And in fact, they say she prophesies. She's going to get into, she's going to have a word of wisdom. This woman is something else. So she's saying in verse 26, yeah, Nabal's guilty, but let God take care of, that's who you are. David, this isn't like you. You're not going to take matters into your own hands. God avenges you. Here's a gift. Please forgive us, him, me. So, and here comes the prophesying. I, I believe she's, she's just speaking a word of wisdom to him. Here's, here's her tactic. She, she says, let's stop talking about Nabal. Let's change the subject to the Lord and to your destiny. Let's get your mind off of the immediate aggravation and onto the bigger picture of God and how he's working and what he wants for you. Oh, now David's starting to calm down and just look into her eyes and, you know, how it goes. So let's talk about the Lord. Let's talk about your future as king. Um, uh, first of all, she says, as I've mentioned, this isn't in keeping with your character. The Lord fights your battles. You're a good man. And even though someone's pursuing you, what a beautiful thing in verse 29. He, she says, God's got you. You're on the run from this madman, King Saul. But God's got you in a bundle of life. And in the Hebrew, it really means The Lord has got you, David, as a special package that he's keeping close to himself. You're bundled up in the Lord. You are secure in him. So come on, let's let's take a look at this. You have nothing to fear. Uh, You're in God's will. The Lord is going to scatter your enemies. And here comes the Holy Spirit, because I don't think she meant to say this. But she says, you know, the Lord is going to scatter your enemies just like out of a sling, and the Holy Spirit saying, remember trusting me, David? Was it your power that took down Goliath with the sling, sling, trust God? Yeah, I just see the Holy Spirit just, just hammering this guy. Bam after bam. Uh, you're going to be king one day, she's saying. And uh, when you are, you won't have this scandal, the burden. She says this is a tremendous burden burden and shame and guilt in your administration and people always talking about oh yeah remember what he did back then no needless bloodshed and she says god's keeping you from avenging yourself now needless bloodshed we all know that's a sin avenging yourself it's a sin somebody hurts you young i'll hurt you back 
You slander me, I'm going to slander you back. You say something unkind, I'm going to say something unkind to you. You don't invite me, I'm not inviting you. Uh, you didn't get me a present, I'm not getting you a present. Uh, you got me something I didn't like, you're getting something you, know, you don't like. <laughs> it's a sin. It's what ungodly people do. So be careful about that. So she says, look, the Lord has, think of this as an intervention, you know? I like thinking about how God stops you because it worked, as you see, or you will see. Um, how does God stop you from making a disaster out of your life? There are several ways. One, the Holy Spirit working in your heart. Number two, the teaching and knowledge of God's word. Number three, godly friends. Number four, the law. <laughs> and its unpleasant uh, consequences of breaking it. Uh, tragic losses, uh, providences, a timely phone call, a chance meeting, a word that gets said and the person doesn't even know what they're saying. You're like, you know, your whole, your whole mind is reverberating with the Holy Spirit trying to uh, get through to you. Uh, so she says, P.S., and when you are king, because we all know you're going to be king, would you remember me? And it just reminds me again of the thief on the cross. When you come into your kingdom, would you just think nice thoughts about me? That would be, that would be awesome. And um, so uh, David has wisdom because he's correctable. You know, it says that, and, and I hate to be crass, but I'm just quoting the Bible. Uh, he who hates correction is stupid. Proverbs 12, verse 1. He who hates correction is stupid. Do you hate correction? Most of us do. I mean, who likes to get, honey, let's sit down. I want you to correct me. Then just make a list of five things, five things I need to correct about my life in general. You know, just start, start wherever you want. I'm so open. I can't wait to hear this. Uh, you know, can I make some eggnog? Turn on the fire. Let's just sit there and just, just correct me over and over. Make a lot. In fact, why stop at five? Let's go to 10. Can you think of 10 ways to correct me? I would, okay, I think you get it. <laughs> 35 to, well, and, and therefore I am stupid. That is a stupid thing because through correction, which we all need, we are safe and blessed and effective and productive and become spiritually mature. How does it happen? Through words of correction. You've got to love it. James 3.17 says, heavenly wisdom is open to reason. And David, he's a man of wisdom. He's open. 35, and we'll finish up. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought and said, go home in peace. I've heard your words and granted your request. He sounds like a king now. When Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. So she told him nothing until daybreak. Then in the morning when Nabal was sober, drinking his coffee there at the kitchen table, his wife told him all these things and his heart failed him and he became like a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, praise be to the Lord. Sorry. <laughs> it just hit me a little funny there. Who, was, who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. Then David sent word to Abigail asking her to become his wife. His servants went to Carmel and said to Abigail, David has sent us to you to take you to become his wife. That's a real different way of proposing. <laughs> she bowed down, and here's a different way of accepting, too. She bowed down with her face to the ground and said, Here is your maidservant, ready to serve you and wash the feet of my master's servants. Hmm. That's a woman. I mean, that's a godly woman. Back in the day, 42. 
Abigail quickly got on a donkey and, attended by her five maids, went with David's messengers and became his wife. David had also married this other woman from Jezreel, and they both were his wives. But Saul had given his daughter, Michael, David's wife, to Potiel, son of Laish, who was from Galim. All right, so... Number six, and finally, a happy ending, at least for one chapter. Abigail uh, didn't have to wait very long for David to remember her. Uh, Abigail returns home and finds the fool in his folly. Um, celebrating like a king, partying, I guess, like a rock star, uh, eating and drinking and being merry. Uh, let me read to you out of Luke chapter 12 and see if you see anybody familiar. And the Lord said this, told him this parable. The ground of a certain man, a rich man, produced a good crop. He thought to himself, oh, what shall I do? I have no place to store all my stuff. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and big, build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. Nabal means fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. It's accountability time. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself. And this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. So here's Nabal. Let's go back to Nabal thinking, look at me, sprawling estate, a thousand goats, uh, 3,000 sheep, servants, wealth, barns, beautiful wife. I've got it made for many years. Let's party, you know? Let's get good and drunk. God said to him, Nabal, Thou fool. Tonight, it's over. Well, it was this morning at coffee with his wife. He had a spirit-inspired heart attack. And grace of God, why the 10 days? The Holy Spirit right by the bedside. Day one. Day two. Day three. Day four, day five, day six, day seven, day eight, day nine, day ten, game over. He gives him ten days. Yeah, flat line. So, who gets the stuff? That's what God asked the rich man in Luke 12. Now, who's going to get all that stuff in your barns? Answer, Nabal, David. David gets the stuff. He married your widow. He inherited not just the bread and the water you wouldn't give him, but he gets the whole estate. Poetic justice, our God. You wouldn't give him a bite of a crust of a bread. And now I'm going to arrange that he gets your wife and everything on the property. In fact, this is going to be the foundation for David's wealth as a king because he's going to live in Hebron and his royal residence is going to be near there. So now he's already filthy rich. Look at what difference one day makes and wait on the Lord. One day before all of this, he's needy. He's hungry. They're dirty. They've got nothing. And in one day, he's filthy rich with a beautiful wife. <laughs> How did that happen? That happens to all of us like that. One day, wait on the Lord for that thing you're waiting for because the Lord is not slow about keeping his promises. He knows what he's doing. So with Abigail's report, Nabal had the hangover there. He's sitting at the table, and an Ananias and Sapphira kind of thing happens, and 
bam, and and so David sees it as God's vindication, and he marries her and acquires all of that wealth, as we've been saying. And uh, let's talk about this second or third wife. It's very clear in closing now that monogamy is God's idea, ideal, I should say. Uh, Jesus, in Matthew 19, quotes Genesis 127 and chapters 2 and verse 24, saying, and the two shall become one flesh, not more than two. And the two, not more than two, and the two shall become one flesh. Uh, Second reason, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul the Apostle, the Holy Spirit working through him, inspiring him, compares marriage, and the two shall become one, to Christ and the church. It doesn't make sense if Christ has multiple brides. He has one bride. Uh, Number three, the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet another man's wife. That implies the two shall become one. Deuteronomy 17, 17 says kings should not have multiple wives. And so it is in the law. Now, uh, where something's recorded in the Bible doesn't mean that the Bible is approving of it. Um, And it seems like God kind of tolerated multiple wives there for a season uh, because of the hardness of hearts. The same way he tolerates divorce. I mean, it's totally, again, God says, I hate it. And, and when the Pharisees have questions about it, he says, just so you know, it was only because of your hard hearts that there's even such a word. Because it wasn't that way from the beginning, and that's when he quotes uh, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And he says, the two shall become one. That's God's idea. Your hard hearts brought up the divorce thing. So that is not part of God's plan. So commentators say it's the same sort of idea. There was a season there. You know, we have enough evidence to know that uh, every time you see multiple wives, every single time, there's a problem. It's not blessed. And so, you know, there's a little bit of a misstep. God's, God's very quiet about it. So it's sort of a mystery what was going on there. With, but it seems to uh, make a lot of sense that uh, God was, at the time, uh, tolerating this behavior. But um, we see what his ideal is in the scriptures and his commands. I mean, there's another one I'm thinking of right now that's not in my notes. But uh, to be an elder, make sure that he's the husband of one wife. You know, so uh, we we have that. There's some things that are a little bit uh, mysterious still in the Bible, and uh, that might be one of them, but I think we have some clarity to know that God has uh, designed marriage between a man and a woman. The two shall become one. All right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love and and all the lessons, the rich ways the Holy Spirit was speaking to my heart and all of our hearts tonight. May we just have the grace to ponder these things in our hearts as we go on our way and we're distracted by the stuff of life. In the back of our minds, would you remind us what was important tonight for us to heed? Because we want to love correction. We want to hear your word and make the necessary course adjustments so that we can be blessed. In Christ's name, amen.